We've been studying the parables of Jesus as found in the Gospels. And we have looked in our series, not uh, together, but we have seen two parables that deal with the matter of prayer. As I begin today, I want to begin with a disclaimer of sorts. It is not my intent, I think, okay, to challenge traditional views simply for the sake of challenging tradition. Um, and it may seem that way in how I have approached and explained the two parables that we've studied on prayer. The first on the friend who came at midnight, and then the persistent widow, which we looked at last Sunday. Today we will look at the third of three parables that Jesus gave on the matter of prayer. Let's begin with a review, just to review a bit of what I've said that might be seen as a challenge uh, to the traditional views of these two parables. The primary point is that the parables tell us about God more than they tell us about ourselves. I think we reverse that order that we think that Jesus is talking about us and then how we relate to God when in fact he is telling us about God and then there is that aspect of our relationship with God. In the parable of the friend who came at midnight, Jesus gives this parable when asked by his disciples, teach us to pray. So we might think, oh, well, this is going to be about the disciples, the original audience or those who are reading it centuries later. But in fact, Jesus is telling us about the Father in the same way that one would not be put off by a friend in need, even if it is a terrible hour and it's, it's a real inconvenience to you, you would help a friend in the same way God our Father is not one who will put us off with some lame excuse about why he can't help us. It's beyond the scope of the parable, but in truth the Father may not give us what we ask for, not because he cannot be bothered, I think that's the point of the parable, but rather because he has some other purpose in mind. And then last week we looked at the parable of the persistent widow. And the point is not the persistence of the widow. I think that's the mistake that so many people make. But rather, it is that God is not like the unjust judge who finally gives in. He can't be bothered, but he finally gives in because he's worn down by the widow. No, God the Father will act on behalf of his people. It may not be immediately, but when he does act, it will be quickly. I mentioned at the end of the sermon last Sunday that we are to be persistent in prayer. It's not the point of the parable, but we see it throughout Scripture. But we must take care that our persistence does not, in fact, morph into insistence and demand that God do as we ask. As I said last week, there are two individuals who are mentioned in the Gospels who are seen as persistent in prayer. The first one, we might not see it as a prayer, but she is, in fact, coming to Jesus and asking. It's the Syrophoenician woman whose daughter is demon-possessed. And she asks Jesus, and will not be put off, that he uh, take the demon from her daughter, and her request is granted. And then we see Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, who three times requests that the suffering he is about to face be taken away. His request is not granted. But in both cases, the character of the person to whom they are praying is, in fact, the central issue. Paul learned this 
when he asked God to remove his thorn in the flesh. He writes that he prayed three times for God to remove it. And the answer is, my grace is sufficient. The answer is, this is who I am. This is my character. I am a God of grace. And we also saw last week at the end of the sermon that in 1 Thessalonians 5.17, we are to pray without ceasing or to pray continually. When it comes to prayer, we should keep two things in mind. First is the character of God. And this is important because Paul can say pray without ceasing because unlike the unjust judge who gets worn down, God is not someone who is bothered by our prayers or someone who is annoyed that we continually pray. It's No. And the character of God, I think, is central at this point. We're not praying to an unjust judge. And then there's also the issue of the character of our prayers. As I mentioned the, the verse says, pray without ceasing, not ask without ceasing or insist without ceasing, harass God without ceasing. Um, there's much more to praying than merely asking. Our faithfulness to the gospel is seen in our faithfulness in prayer. And that's why Jesus says at the end, when he returns, will he find people who are still praying? In the face of difficulties, in the face of weakness, in the face of helplessness, will God's people continue to pray? I wonder if in the midst of prosperity, when Jesus returns, will his people continue to pray? That's the review. Now let's talk briefly about what prayer is before we move on to the parable. Prayer is a conversation. It is a dialogue that discloses a personal relationship. Simply put, prayer is our responding to God are part of the conversation. There are a lot of questions we have about prayer. Is it actually possible to talk to God? If prayer is talking to God, what do we call it when people pray to other gods? Is that really prayer? Does God listen to us? Does God hear the prayer of unbelievers? Does God want to hear us? What kind of things can we or should we say to God in prayer? I think the biggest question is, does it make any difference if we pray or not? For many, it boils down to a single issue. Does it make any sense to pray? What we find in the scripture is that we are commanded to pray. Fair enough. But does it make sense for us to pray? We could make the argument this way. Persons talk to one another. God is a person and so are we. Therefore, God talks to us and we talk to him in prayer. But where do we start with the whole business of prayer? In a conversation, somebody has to begin. Someone has to say something first and then the conversation carries on. If prayer is a dialogue with God, who started the conversation? I think this is the critical question. It will affect how we view prayer. This is foundational. If, in fact, we think that we started the conversation, then we will view prayer very differently than if we believe that God did. So who was the first one to speak? Well, if you open scripture at the very beginning, it is God who speaks. He said, let there be light, and so on. I've asked this before, but have you ever wondered why God spoke in creation? Why did he not simply snap his fingers or think the world into existence? Why this emphasis on God speaking, the emphasis on word? 
it's so pervasive in scripture that we take it for granted. Um, And yet I find it fascinating that though God spoke the world into being, when it came to creating those in his image, there was a conversation within the Trinity, but he did not speak us into existence, but shaped us out of the dust of the ground. We read, let us make man in our image, in our likeness. Let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. What we find is conversation is consistent with our understanding of Trinity, of Father, Son, and Spirit. And so when we come to the New Testament and we read about Jesus being the Word, it makes sense. And so God says, let us make man, and then he does not merely speak, but he then shapes us from the creation that is already there. Because we are made in the image of God, conversation is a part of who we are. If we see conversation within the Trinity, then we would expect conversation within human society. And when it comes to our conversation with God, it is God who begins the conversation. Consider the story of Abraham. If God did not call Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldees, then Abraham would have never gone to Canaan. The Lord said to Abram, leave your country, your people, and your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So Abraham left as the Lord had told him. God began the conversation and Abraham responds in obedience. And for the next 24 years, God spoke to Abraham and Abraham responded. But there's an incident in in Genesis 18 that is of particular interest. Um, You may know the story. Abraham is sitting in front of his tent one day and suddenly he sees three men, three strangers coming along. He hurries to greet them and invites them into his tent He has special food prepared for them, and he has a meal for them. Uh, One of these persons is the Lord Jesus Christ, the pre-incarnate Christ, and the other two are angels who will later on be sent uh, to rescue Lot. As they are leaving, a conversation, a new conversation, ensues. When the men got up to leave, they looked down towards Sodom, and Abraham walked along with them to see them on their way. Then the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation, and all nations on earth will be blessed through him. For I have chosen him, so that he will direct his children and his household after him, to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just, so that the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he has promised. Then the Lord said, The outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great and their sins so grievous that I will go down and see if what they have done is as bad as the outcry that has reached me. If not, I will know. Then the men turned away and went toward Sodom, but Abraham remained standing before the Lord. Then Abraham approached him and said, Will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Thus it is the Lord who brings up the issue that the wickedness of Sodom is so great 
that he is going to do something about it. If it's not great, well, then he won't. Well, Abraham knows. Everybody knows. And so Abraham now responds in what we would call prayer. It's part of a conversation. Will you, in fact, destroy a city to kill the wicked people, but to kill the righteous as well? If you know the story, Abraham says, what if there are 50 righteous people? And the Lord says, okay, I won't destroy it if there are 50. And it goes down 40, 30, and finally Abraham ends at 10. Many people see this as making a a bargaining with God, sort of making a deal with God. I don't see it that way. What I see it is part of an ongoing conversation in which Abraham came to see that God is who he says he is. And then there's the story of Jacob. It's a fascinating story to me. I think mainly because for much of my life I have misunderstood it. Um, in, way, in the same way that people have misunderstood the story of Abraham with the Lord about Sodom and Gomorrah. In Genesis 32, we are told the story, and the context is that Jacob, who stole from his brother, who snuck away, is now returning home. And he has been told that his brother is coming with a lot of men toward him, and he's really afraid. And so he divides up his family so that if, in fact, Esau attacks, at least half of the family will escape while the other half is being killed. Jacob is left alone. It is at this point that we read, so Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him till daybreak. It's important for us to see that. Jacob did not start this wrestling match. Okay? Somebody else did. Think a minute. If somebody hits you, you have two choices. You can either run, or you can stand your ground and hit them back. But if somebody wrestles with you, in many ways you have no choice. You have, you have to wrestle back. I mean, you, you just can't get out of it. You have, you have to engage the person who has engaged you. Many people see prayer as us wrestling with God, when in fact the story is that God wrestled with Jacob. And it happened through the night, And it is through this that Jacob came to see that it is God who is the one who had been watching over him his whole life. It wasn't Jacob's cleverness. It wasn't his sneakiness. It was, in fact, the God of heaven who had guided him all along. God initiated the wrestling so that Jacob might learn the truth. One more example of God initiating a conversation. We find this a number of times in the Old Testament, but in 1 Samuel 1, the story of Hannah. Her husband is Elkanah. He has two wives. She is one of his two wives. She's the one he favors, but she has no children, whereas her rival Penina does have children and harasses her about it. We are told very specifically that she had no children Because the Lord had closed her womb. God began that conversation. God acted in her life and then she responded with tears and prayer. And made the promise that if you give me a son, I will give him back to you. And the result is that she did have a son and his name was Samuel. So, when we think about prayer, 
we should come to see it as our part of a conversation which God began. Okay? Then briefly, what are parables? Before we get to the parable today, I just want to mention one thing. They are God-centered stories. Riddles, perhaps, or proverbs, comparisons, contrasts. But we should not be surprised if there is a parable about prayer, which is a conversation that God began, that God would be the center of that parable. So today, our text here in Luke chapter 18, you'll notice that it comes after the parable of the unjust judge. Unlike most parables in the Gospels, we find the purpose of the parable stated before the parable itself. Look, if you would, beginning in verse number 9. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself. One note has to himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, And he who humbles himself will be exalted. The two men presented in this parable are polar opposites. But neither description is a caricature. We shouldn't imagine that what Jesus is saying is so bizarre that he's exaggerating its hyperbole to some degree. No. Um, For example, what the Pharisee says in his prayer, we find in original sources from the time period. So this is not bizarre. This is how Pharisees would pray. Pharisee is derived from a Latin word, which comes from a Hebrew word, which means set apart. They were seen as special, as holy. What the Pharisees had to teach about prayer, about worship, about righteous living, had a strong influence. And in fact, I would say Judaism today, rabbinic Judaism, is a result of the Pharisees. In this prayer, we learn that not only does he keep the law, but he goes beyond the law. He states that he fasts twice a week. And we know from sources that this would be Monday and Thursday. Well, if you look at the Old Testament law, the Jews were not asked to fast twice a week. In fact, they weren't even asked to fast twice a year. They were asked to fast one day a year on the Day of Atonement. So this guy is like super Pharisee. He's like a super Jew. He keeps the law and even goes beyond it. The tax collector is at the opposite end of the spectrum. The way that the Romans did things was they would farm out tax collecting and you would bid on it. And if you won the bid, then you would pay in advance and then you would collect all the taxes that you could. Poll taxes, land taxes, toll taxes on travel, uh, inheritance taxes. And if you're a tax collector, you know, let's say you bid $100,000, once you'd collected $100,000, Everything beyond that is, goes into your pocket. Uh, beyond their perceived greed, which I think was there, these men were seen as traitors. They worked for the occupying Romans. 
at least later, we're not sure about this time, but they were not allowed to be witnesses in court trials. They were not to be trusted. And in the Mishnah, they are put in the category of murderers and robbers. They were seen as criminals. So we have polar opposites here, the Pharisee and the tax collector. Look at their prayers. Their prayers begin the same with an address to God. You will also notice that as Jesus tells this parable, the Pharisee's posture is described briefly, whereas we're given sort of an extended version of his prayer. With the tax collector, his prayer is quite brief. We are told much more about his physical posture. Look, if you would, at verses 11 and 12. The Pharisee stood up and prayed to himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. This prayer is seen as pretentious, prideful, and self-righteous. Particularly the use of I, which in the ESV and in Greek happens five times. All seems to be about him. But I think we need to sort of back off a minute and realize that Pharisees have gotten bad PR for centuries now. And here we are in 2013. And so for almost two millennia, uh, the Pharisees have been getting bad, a bad reputation. So when we read about a Pharisee, our first reaction is to think negatively. But not so with Jesus' audience. To the Jews that Jesus was speaking to, he's talking about a righteous man and a sinner. That's how they heard it. Um, They did not think as we would, oh, a self-righteous man and a sinner. Basically, two sinners. That's not how they would hear it. The way that this man prays, again, to us sounds very pretentious. um, But let me read to you from Deuteronomy chapter 26. These are the law. This is the law. And these are instructions given about prayer and tithing. This is from Deuteronomy 26, verses 12 to 15. When you have finished setting aside a tenth of all your produce in the third year, the year of the tithe, you shall give it to the Levite, the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow, so that they may eat in your towns and be satisfied. Then say to the Lord your God. Okay, so this is the prayer. I have removed from my house the sacred portion and have given it to the Levite, the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow, according to your com- as to all you commanded. I have not turned aside from your commands, nor have I forgotten any of them. I have not eaten any of the sacred portion while I was in mourning, nor have I removed any of it while I was unclean, nor have I offered any of it to the dead. I have obeyed the Lord my God. I have done everything you commanded me. Look down from heaven, your, he- your holy dwelling place, and bless your people Israel and the land you gave us, as you promised on oath to our ancestors, a land flowing with milk and honey. Did you notice how many times in the prayer the person is to say, I? And so when we hear the Pharisees say, I, five times, I think we need to sort of relax a bit and, and say, well, okay, this isn't, This isn't necessarily pretentious. This seems to follow a pattern found in the Old Testament. I think what is striking in the Pharisee's prayer is not his self-righteousness, which is there, but it is his disdain for the tax collector. In this, he clearly failed to obey the second commandment to love his neighbor as himself. What about the tax collector's prayer? But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, 
God, have mercy on me, a sinner. A brief but moving description. One writer uses the word poignant. Standing apart from others, from the decent folk, if you wish, refusing even to look up to heaven, which there would be no problem if he did. We see when Jesus prays, oftentimes he looks up into heaven. Um, Beating his breast, it's imperfect, so it's an ongoing activity. He prays simply, God be merciful to me, a sinner. And the major difference between the two men becomes apparent. The tax collector sees himself in need of God's mercy. The Pharisee does not see himself as being in need of anything, even from God. I don't know if you caught it in the passage I just read from Deuteronomy, but at the very end of the prayer, look down from heaven, your holy dwelling place, and bless your people Israel and the land you have given us, as you promise on oath to our ancestors the land flowing with milk and honey. We don't hear anything like this from the Pharisee. We don't hear him asking God for anything, asking God to bless him. And why not? Well, because in a word, he lacks humility. He has no humility. As Jesus says at the end of the parable, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. The tax collector is in line with Jesus' focus on forgiveness and mercy. The Pharisee sees no need of mercy in his life whatsoever. And he does not seem to be willing to concede any for the tax collector. There is his disdain. One might have even appreciated him saying, I'm not in particular need of mercy, but that guy surely does. But we don't even hear that. What is the result of these prayers? Put simply, one received mercy and one did not. One asked for mercy and one did not. What do we learn from this this parable? What are the implications of this parable? Well, first of all, what it tells us about God. If you accept what I stated at the beginning of the sermon, that prayers are part of a conversation which God began, and that parables are God-centered or theocentric, then in understanding this parable, we should not be surprised that it contains a revelation of who God is. You see, the attitudes of these two men reveal to us two pictures of God, two images of God. One that is presupposed by the Pharisee, and it is false, And the other is hoped for. It's hoped for by the tax collector. And it is it is right. See, God is not impressed with pious acts or feelings of superiority. God is a God of mercy. He responds to the needs of those who are in fact in need. This is a parable about God's mercy. Because in fact, the tax collector goes home justified. What does this parable tell us about prayer? Again, if you accept what I stated at the beginning of the sermon, prayers are part of a conversation which God began, and that parables are theocentric. Then in seeking to understand this parable, we should consider these two men, how they prayed, and what their prayers revealed. You could make the case that both of them are responding to God. They both begin with God. So they are responding 
to God in prayer. But clearly the Pharisee talks as though he began and ends the conversation. It's a monologue rather than a dialogue. You might say, well, okay, but how would I see the tax collector as responding to God? A conversation that God began. Well, he acknowledges that he is a sinner. And what is sin? Sin is breaking the law. The law that God spoke to Moses and gave to his people. It is the beginning of a conversation to which the man responds, I am guilty. I am a sinner. He responds to God's speaking. He recognizes and admits that he has true moral guilt. It is not that he feels guilty. Uh, I think in our conversations we need to be careful that we recognize there's a difference between feeling guilty and being guilty. I don't know if you've experienced this, but I find oftentimes I feel guilty when I, in fact I've not done anything wrong. I may have done something embarrassing, okay, but I've not done anything wrong. On the other hand, it is shocking sometimes how I feel no guilt when in fact I have done something wrong. But while there was, I think, great emotion in this prayer, it is not primarily an emotional prayer. This is a man saying, I am guilty. Your law has spoken and says what I should do, what I should not do. I am a sinner. And then secondly, he acknowledges that God is a God of mercy. God told Moses in Exodus 33, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. David wrote of God's mercy over and over again in the Psalms. Psalm 30, To you, Lord, I called, to the Lord I cried for mercy. Hear, O Lord, and be merciful to me. O Lord, be my help. You turn my wailing into dancing. You remove my sackcloth and clothe me with joy, that my heart may sing to you and not be silent. O Lord, my God, I will give you thanks forever. Or in Psalm 41, I said, O Lord, have mercy on me. Heal me, for I have sinned against you. In our prayer of confession today, I don't know if you caught how many times mercy or merciful is mentioned. This is who God is. This is how he has spoken, how he has revealed himself. And now the tax collector responds in prayer and says, be merciful. You, a God of mercy, you revealed yourself as a God of mercy. Be merciful to me, a guilty sinner, someone who has broken your law. The tax collector responds to God's law by admitting and confessing his guilt. And he appeals to God as one who is merciful. And then a side note here, because it's beyond the scope of the parable, but what does this parable tell us about self-righteousness? Simply put, self-righteousness is oftentimes seen in how we look at other people, our disdain for other people. This Pharisee's self-righteousness is not seen in the fact that he lists all the good things he does. That's there. But it is where he says, I'm not like other people particularly this guy. I am not like him. We see this, by the way, in other stories in the gospel. The parable of the prodigal son. 
The younger son admits his guilt. He comes back and says, I'm no longer worthy to be your son. The older brother has nothing but disdain for his younger brother when the father comes to invite him to the feast. The story of Simon the Pharisee who invited Jesus to his house, but then was offended and had great disdain for this woman who was wiping Jesus' feet, who was washing his feet and pouring perfume on him. The parable of the Good Samaritan, the Levite and the priest, I think, have disdain for the man who was ambushed by thieves. They could not be bothered, this man, in his situation. We need to be careful. But there's something else, and I found this interesting. One author put it this way, the modern-day counterpart of the Pharisee would be welcomed into any respectable community, religious or social, and given a responsible position. It is surprising how much egotism and rigorous devotion will be tolerated if a person is just and clean living and gives of her or his substance. We are not to be self-righteous and we are not to tolerate it. What does the parable teach us? What are we to learn from this? We are to view prayer as a response. It's our part of a conversation that God began. But this is where it gets tricky. What is God saying? For Abraham, this is after 24 years of leaving home and waiting for a son to be born. Finally, there is a face-to-face meeting with the God he has worshipped. And this God says, I'm going to wipe out those towns. And Abraham cannot understand this. This is from Genesis 18. Will not the judge of all the earth do right? What, what are you doing? What are you going to do? Is, is this who I've been worshipping all these years? This, this monster, this ogre that will just wipe out towns? The good with the evil? And then we have an ongoing conversation that begins at 50 and ends at 10. Consider Jacob. I mean, he's already terrified that his brother's coming. And suddenly, out of the blue, this man jumps him and wrestles with him all night. What are you doing? Consider Hannah's tears. Her husband loved her, but she could have no children. God began the conversation. We may not know what he is saying, but the answer may not, and the answer may not come immediately, but we are to engage in the conversation. We, God in our circumstances and our lives is speaking to us. We may not get the message, but we respond in prayer, as Abraham did. And in the process, learn, as Abraham did, as Jacob did. Because at the end of, well, at the end of the night, the sun was coming up and the man said, let me go. And Jacob said, I won't let you go unless you bless me. Somehow, Jacob began to understand, after being wrestled with all night, this is the Lord. 
I've heard it described one time that, spiritually speaking, some people have bloodied their knuckles on the gates of heaven, just pounding and pounding and pounding and waiting for God to give them the answer that they want. That views prayer as a conversation that I begin. I want this. Rather, if we see prayer as a conversation God begins, I may not be getting the message clearly, but in prayer, a conversation ensues. He begins it and I respond. And I don't just pray once or twice or three times. I am to pray without ceasing. We should always pray because God is always speaking to us. He is always talking to us. I just don't think we're listening. One last thing. It's an amazing thing I find in this story. Within the parable, the tax collector does not even know the outcome of his prayer. Jesus says that he went home justified. But we have no sense. We're not told, and we're not told everything about the parable, but we're not told that the man knew this. He didn't congratulate himself and say, I've been forgiven of my sins. But he does go home as the man who received mercy. And as God's people, we have also received mercy. And a conversation that God began when he called us. And a conversation that should still be going on. I fear oftentimes we let down on our end. Or we begin to imagine that it begins with us. Let's understand what prayer is. And then by God's grace, let us pray as we should. Let's pray together. Our Father, on some level, we don't find it surprising that people pray to you. And so we sort of take that for granted. But we should be amazed that, in fact, you talk to us. That we should not take for granted. That you have been speaking to us all our lives. Through our circumstances. Where you put us. Those you put us with. So many different ways. Just by your grace, I don't know that we're listening. May we come to see that, first of all, you have been merciful to us. So merciful and gracious to us. You've called us to be your people. And you're seeking to engage us in a conversation in which we respond in prayer. And may we, like Abraham and Jacob, learn through the process of praying. And the result may not be what we want, but in the end we will see what you want. And by your grace, learn. I thank you for this amazing parable, for what it tells us about you. 
how gracious and merciful you are. And how that you, you are merciful to those who call out in need. For those who think they have no need of you, then they do not receive mercy. Again, we pray for those that aren't with us today that you would bring them back to us safely. And for Stacy and Adelaide as they travel, that you would give them safety. For Lauren, uh, Lucy, Jane as they come back tonight. May we have a sense of your presence throughout this week. May we be lights in a world of darkness as we reflect your love and your goodness to others. We pray this through Jesus and in his name. Amen.